0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I think we'll read from verse 3 through to verse 14. That's the whole section that we're looking at over three weeks. Uh, Praise to the Father for salvation. Tonight, praise to the Son in verses 7 to 12. And next week, praise to the Spirit. So let's hear God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Our text is 7 to 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, bless us now with your word, the ministry of the Spirit who has sealed us, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. May we enter into that inheritance now as we come to your word. May we know the joy of redemption and forgiveness in Christ Jesus, the benefit of our inheritance. Lord, bless us with faith. We might receive your word in its fullness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, perhaps if you were here last week, you'll remember that these verses, verses 3 to 14... In the original Greek, are just one long sentence, no punctuation. It's just one long praise to the triune God for a Trinitarian, gracious, rich salvation. The salvation which is yours uh, this very night, dear Christian. We saw that Paul is seeking to, broadly speaking, delineate the work of Father, Son, and Spirit in uh, redemption uh, here in verses 7 to 12 we witness him speaking more specifically about the role of the eternal son of Jesus Christ paul identifies two elements to uh, son wrought salvation two elements in verse 7 we see there's redemption we have forgiveness of our trespasses and verse 11 again in him we have obtained an inheritance. There's redemption in him and an inheritance in him. Redemption through his blood, an inheritance which is eternal uh, for us in Christ. Friends, these truths tonight should make the sorrowful heart glad and should make the weak soul strong. What we have as Christians, we have in our Lord Jesus Christ in Him. And because we have it in Him, we have it fully, we have it absolutely, we have it with no chance of loss or change. What do we have? We have, first of all, in in verse 7, in Him we have redemption, and verse 11, in Him we have an inheritance. First of all, Paul praises the Son for redemption, verses 7 to 10. I want to speak very clear as we read it once again these verses 3 to 14 we we are confronted with the inhimness of our salvation uh, what we know as a doctrine of union with Christ in fact the entire passage is framed through the lens of union with our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse four, we're chosen in him. Verse seven, in him we have redemption. Verse eleven, in him we have an inheritance. Verse thirteen, in him, when we believed him, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. I hope you begin to see the, what I call the in himness of the Christian life and of salvation. Paul could easily have written, we have redemption by Christ. In fact, he uses that language through Christ, by Christ in this passage and elsewhere. But the Holy Spirit has chiefly framed our salvation in these words, in him. In him. That's to say, friends, the Spirit of truth himself, the triune God, would have you understand the relationships of salvation, not just as we see verse 3, Father, verse 7, uh, Son, verse 13, Spirit, not just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in redemption, but just as much so, you and the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ, and you. God would have you see what it means to be in Christ, and God would have you see what it means For Christ to be also in you. Sinclair Ferguson writes, The doctrine of union with Christ is central to living the Christian life. Central to living the Christian life. We can also add to that that it is central to understanding true biblical Trinitarian gracious salvation. The doctrine of union with Christ is central to us understanding what it means to be saved. And what does it mean? Well, we saw last week the concept of union with Christ is first introduced to us from an eternal perspective. There is an eternal reality to union with Christ. That is to say, the Christian had union with the Savior before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's to say before Genesis 1.1 ever took place in time, in the councils of eternity, according to the decree of the Father, the Christian was placed in Christ. He was set as a precious stone, as it were, in Christ. God chose him. God chose her to be found, elected in Christ Jesus, to be found in the blessed and eternal sphere of the Son Himself. We were chosen in him. And that Son, as as we've heard in, in recent times, was incarnated. And through the ministry of Christ and the ministry of the Spirit, we now find that eternal union enacted in time. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. In him we were chosen, that eternal union now enacted in time. In him we have redemption. How? Through his blood. Union with Christ is a most precious doctrine to the Christian. It says this to us. All that the Christian has, all that the Christian is, the manifold blessings that we have are found in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so are we united with him... That who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in some meaningful and real and eternal fashion also become ours. Who Jesus is and what he has done become ours in some very real fashion. Now that's not to say, dear friends, that we as creatures... Become God. Union with Christ doesn't obliterate the the creator creature distinction, but it does elevate the creature. It most certainly elevates the creature. Peter will speak this way of this concept, not using the language of union per se, but nonetheless speaking about union. Two Peter chapter one, verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You're already seeing a grant given to the Christian. Granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Did you hear what's been granted the Christian? Everything pertaining to life and godliness, yes. It's called to us His own glory, and excellence, and then we become partakers of the divine nature. If it wasn't said in Scripture, it would be blasphemy. That's a staggering truth, that the Christians should have become partaker of the divine nature. It doesn't mean we become God. It means that God's attributes, God's life, God's fellowship, God's blessing become ours particularly in the context here of holiness. But more than holiness, glory, excellence, we've escaped the corruption of this world. It means for the Christian that union with Christ grants us entry into the divine fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not in an absolute way as God enjoys it, but in a most profound way nonetheless. We are granted entry into the life and the fellowship that our Lord Jesus Christ enjoys eternally. It breaks into our lives now. Perhaps we see this most clearly in Revelation 22, verses 4 and 5. We are told that we will be given crowns of glory and that we will reign and rule with Christ forever. Yes, he will by all means rule us, but we shall rule with him. Such it is, friends, to partake of the divine essence. Such it is to be united with Christ. We enjoy the staggering blessings of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul says in this context, in him we have redemption through his blood. That is to say, union with Christ is peculiarly manifested at his cross, through his blood. At his cross, there is a peculiar union with our Savior. Notice Paul says we have redemption through his blood, and then explains that by saying, the forgiveness of sins. Through the shed blood of our savior comes the forgiveness of sins. Paul is writing in shorthand for the whole of gospel blessings found in Christ. What does he mean when he says redemption? Well, the concept of redemption is a ransom price to pay, make a payment which grants deliverance of something. He paid the price due to us for sin. He paid the price that we should have paid. And there's a blessed symmetry with what we heard in Sunday school this morning. Because he's the God man, because he's sinless, because he's divine, he alone is able to pay that price successfully. He became a substitute in our place. Condemned he stood, we sing. He was there instead of us. The ransom purchased us back from the power of sin and death. So much so that Paul says here and elsewhere that our sins are forgiven. The forgiveness of our trespasses. That's to say the guilt and punishment of your personal individual sin was forgiven at the cross. It means that at the cross of Christ, the curse was removed from you. You're no longer liable for the penalty of a broken covenant of works. It also means the power of sin was broken in your life and in my life. This is the inhimness of redemption. And yet, while we say in my place condemned he stood, the union we have with our Savior at the cross actually puts each Christian right back at the cross. Yes, he's a substitute. Yes, no one else could die for sins. But the Apostle Paul will have this to say to us back in Romans chapter 6. This is the passage of union. Verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Union with Christ means union in his death. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Separated from him in one category at the cross, in my place condemned he stood. But Paul says by faith we were united with him in that very moment when he died on the cross. As if we were with him there, not paying the penalty for our own sins, but enjoying all the fullness of his sacrifice for us. Were you there when they crucified my Lord, says the old song. There's a no and there's a yes to that, friends. Paul says we were there, baptized into his death. And to be baptized into his death means also to be united with him in his resurrection. So much so that he says, so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. With the forgiveness of sins means also the breaking of the back of the power of sin in our life. Good news. Sin has done its worst in your life. If you're a true Christian, and you are victorious, that's why Paul will go on to say this in Romans 6.11, So you also must consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus because we're united with Christ in his death on the cross, in his resurrection, we therefore have newness of life. Consider yourself to be dead to sin. The power of sin, the curse of sin, consider yourself dead to it. Paul will then say, verse 12 of chapter 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Friends, do you hear this? When Paul says, in him we have redemption, you need to rush back and read Romans chapter 6. In him we have redemption. Five words which speak to us of the reality that not only sins are forgiven, but the power of sin in your life is broken at the cross. Isn't that wonderful? Friends, are any of you here tonight without Christ? Laboring under the weight of sin, a burden you can't possibly bear, a debt you can't possibly pay back. Friends, we say to you this, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved, united to him. You will have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of your sin. What better message is there for you this night? No, Jesus, have redemption. But for you, dear Christian, what profound empowerment and encouragement there is. You know, we'll leave church tonight, we'll have our nice ice cream social, we'll go home, and what are we left with? We're left with ourselves and the struggles of ourselves. And tomorrow we'll get up and we'll have the same struggle, us, me, each one of us, struggling with that sin that is innate to you and to me. And if you're not struggling with sin, there's problems. But... That sin that is left in you, as Paul will tell you, shall not rule over you. In him we have redemption. The power of sin in you is broken. Because, friend, you cannot be inseparably united to the Lord Jesus Christ and inseparably united to sin. It's impossible. Yes, there's a remnant of sin dwelling in you, indwelling sin but you are inseparably united to Christ. You cannot be inseparably united to sin and the Savior. To put it another way, your status and your state has changed so you're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a debtor to sin. You're no longer bent towards sin. You have the power to say no to sin in your life. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. You have union with the Savior. On that basis, again, Paul will say, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You'll be glad to know I'm going to move through the rest of the passage much more quickly. Notice the realities that are associated with this redemption with this forgiveness. Verse 7, halfway through, we read this. We've got the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Here we are. We could spend a month of Sundays on these words. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. According to the riches of his grace, Which he lavished upon us. Friends, think of the foundational, the kind of the root of this idea here. It's the riches of God's grace. All of this comes to us by grace, not by earning it, not by merit. Friends, we must never. Never let salvation or covenant status go to our head. We must always remember what we have, what we are, is according to the riches of God's grace. In other words, it's no small grace that you can just put in a jar, as it were, and put upon the shelf of your mind. Yes, that's God's grace. I'm saved by grace. Good. Now, this is the riches of God's grace which he has lavished upon us. I've got all manner of images conjuring up in my mind as we say those words, riches lavished upon us. There's like an overflowing pouring out of God's grace upon his people. And when he's done pouring that out, there's more being poured out, and more and more again, God lavishing upon you, dear Christian. His goodness. Just pause and think on that for a minute. The world is chasing after what it perceives to be blessing and goodness and fulfillment. And you might be sat there, or you've been sat in the last week thinking, I really, really wish I had this or that or the other. Or you might even be thinking, I need this or that or the other perhaps you're longing for something that you don't have right now and god has not given it to you right now because you don't have it i want to say to you friend praise god you don't have it right now whatever it is praise the lord he has not given you that thing Because in his wisdom and insight, verse 8, he has lavished you with something far more blessed, far more beneficial, far more fulfilling than anything this life could bestow upon you. In his wisdom, he has given you precisely what you need. What has he given you? According to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon you, he's given you Christ. He's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. What's he done? Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. The purpose of redemption. The purpose of union with your savior he has made that known unto you he has given it to you he has given christ unto you and he has given you to christ there's a great purpose here There's a purpose statement verse 9 according to his purpose which he set forth in christ and here's the purpose as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The purpose is unity. Things in heaven, things on earth brought together in one. Paul is saying God through Christ, through redemption, through the renewal of us and the renewal of this world will bring order from disorder, harmony from dissonance, peace from war, love from enmity, and unity from those that were separated. Our current existence, somewhat dislocated by necessity, will be relocated, set back in its place when we arrive in heaven the current tensions of the Christian life will eventually, friend, be removed from us. Have you heard what's being said? Have you heard the goodness of God? Let me apply this very briefly using the words of Sinclair Ferguson. It's it's something of a long quote, but I want to read it because it's worth it. Ferguson making us think on these realities says along with the lavish grace comes wisdom and insight. God lets us into his secret. As a father, he shares with his children what his long-term plan is. We need to pause and meditate upon the grace Paul is describing here. If we grasp the nature of the love God has demonstrated on the cross, we will realize that it is not a reluctant, but a lavish love. How suspicious of God many Christians seem to be. We do not trust him. We doubt his goodness. We taste little of the sweetness of his grace. Here is what will dissolve paralyzing fears, cringing doubt, suspicious unbelief. The riches of his grace. Lavished upon us. And we have these riches already in Christ. And then he concludes with just a few brief sentences. Do you live in a growing sense of the superabundant love of God? No wonder Paul later describes God as rich in mercy. Yes, says Ferguson, grace. Makes us rich. Do you live in that daily awareness of the superabundant love of God? Friends, Paul says he has lavished upon us grace upon grace upon grace, and it's all in Christ. How about that for a motivation? for us to live well before God. But there's another motivation in the text as well. It's an inheritance, verse 11. An inheritance which we find in him, in Christ. I'm sure you've all been dire straits in one way or another. Sorrow, trouble, struggles, illness, hardship of one kind or another. What a difference there is to our outlook in such times when we know there is a, an almost prescribed end to those struggles. Uh, what a difference in the way it enables us to, to bear with those struggles when we know there is relief coming or a prize or a goal. We are unable to withstand them better It changes us that there is a prospect at the end of things. We find here a prospect, a great goal, a great prize, a great reward. Not a reward that we've worked for, but a reward that Christ has provided us. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance. And notice the tense of of the language there, we have obtained. It's something that we already have, even though we don't possess it in its fullness. Pastor Rockin often speaks about the already and not yet. What we have now is the inheritance, but we do not yet have it in its fullness. God has given us, as it were, a down payment of it, the blessings of that reality, though the best is yet to come. In him, we have an inheritance. We have been granted to inherit something remarkable. An inheritance which is eternal. I spoke about this inheritance last week. Peter speaks of it. Kept in heaven for you. Undefiled, unchanging, spotless. A perfect inheritance. The inheritance of life. Life without pain or suffering, life without death, life without sin, life without an inclination to sin, life gazing on the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and all the elect throughout time. Blessed life indeed. But Paul says something interesting here, does he not? In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Who is the we? The we here is Paul the writer. And the we here is the Ephesians, the audience. Paul is saying the work of Christ is efficacious for Jew and Gentile alike. Paul is drawing our attention that gone is the age, gone is the age where, where principally the blessing was for Jew only. Now, let's not make the mistake of thinking that the the blessing was only ever for Jew. It never was only ever for Jew, even in the old covenant. Rahab the Canaanite was of the household of faith. Uriah the Hittite was of the household of faith. Ruth the Moabitess was of the household of faith. But here, Paul is reflecting upon the fact that the floodgates of redemption have now burst open and have come to Jew and Gentile alike, life in Christ, the inheritance. Listen, the inheritance is given both to Jew and to Gentile alike. And that's kind of old news for us, isn't it? Because we're 2,000 years after Paul was writing, 2,000 years of the new covenant, 2,000 years of the age of the church, the age of the Gentiles being brought in. Most of us, I assume, are Gentiles, according to Burr. But we need to understand just how revolutionary that was in Paul's day. That Jew and Gentile both have the inheritance. Paul's going to use the imagery of a dividing wall of separation that separated Jew and Gentile. We have to say, friends, in Paul's day, that wall was well built and well-maintained, both by Jew and by Gentile. Paul is saying, in Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. The dividing wall of separation has been broken down. The Gentiles are being brought in and are joint heirs with Jews. That was staggering news in Paul's day. Staggering news for the Jew. It would be like us waking up tomorrow morning to find that not only had Russia and Ukraine had some sort of truce, but that they'd actually joined together as one country to share their territories in peace. It would be staggering news. The great lesson here for us, friends, is this. The radical nature of gospel unity that we take great care never to put up new barriers (coughs) that were torn down by the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially when we think of different ethnicities. We dare not attempt to put up, nor should we want to, what God has torn down in the gospel of Christ. This inheritance, Paul says, is a result of predestination according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's a staggering phrase. According, uh, who works to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We need to contend with this reality, There is one and one only of whom these words are true. That's our God. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This has never been true of anyone else save our triune God. It's not even true of Satan. It's not true of the greatest ruler or dictator. None of them work all things according to the counsel of his will. Because they can't. They do not possess the attribute of being almighty. Our God does. Our God is almighty. (laughs) He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And he will not be gainsaid by the creature He's predestined his children to this inheritance. He's pre-planned it. And he's in a process of enacting it. Friends, let's take comfort. Our times are in the hand of the true and living God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Paul adds in verse 12 an interesting purpose statement all this is verse 12 so that we who were the first to hope in christ might be to the praise of his glory that's both a statement of time and a statement of theology you notice it back in verse 11 in him we have obtained an inheritance jew and gentile You'll notice in verse 13, the pronouns change altogether. In him, you also were sealed with the Spirit. You Gentiles were sealed with the Spirit. Now, verse 12, he speaks about the Jews, those Jews who accepted Christ. In him, sorry, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Paul saying, in the wonder of this Gentile inheritance, don't think that God has forgotten his historic people, the ones with whom he made covenant. He says, you we who were the first to hope in Christ. Who first hoped in Christ? The Jews, the Israelites. Abraham hoped in Christ. He rejoiced to see my day, says our Lord, or was glad when he saw it. They were the first to hope in Christ. Chronologically, the Gentiles came after them as people groups. But it's also a theological statement. God does not forget his promises. God does not forget his agreements. God does not forget his covenant with his people. Believing Jews are to the praise of his glory that god promised and god enacted he fulfilled what he said he would do and still is fulfilling what he said he would do friends let's bring this to a conclusion three great applications of this text very briefly dear christian you must know you must study You must meditate upon the lavish riches of God's grace. Go home and look the word lavish up. What a staggering truth. The grace of God as if that's not enough. He's given us the riches of his grace and he has lavished it upon us. We know the reality of not feeling this way, don't we as Christians? of not feeling that we've got the lavish riches of God's grace upon us or with us. Friends, it's precisely in those moments you must go back to this text and text like it. You must teach yourself and teach yourself and teach yourself again. Meditate on good in good times on the lavish riches that you are equipped in the difficult times to refresh your soul with the realities of who we are and what we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Think on the lavish riches of Christ. Secondly, knowing this, we ought to do what? We ought to strive for holiness. We can go back to verse 4. We should be holy and blameless before him in love. Friends, is this not the great energizing reality? United with Christ, sin does not have any dominion over us. Live in a way which pleases God. Strive for holiness. Strive for righteousness. Be obedient. And the third great application is what? It's the great goal of this salvation. Over and over, Paul has said it Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's to the praise of the glory. Of God. If this doctrine doesn't fill us with zeal to give glory to God, we've got problems. The Son became man, gave Himself for us, that our sins of deepest dye may be blotted out and made as white as snow. Thank the Lord for that. Let us this night renew our devotion to Father, to Son, and to Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our God, you are most, most gracious. In fact, there is none like you. We praise you for your wonderful grace unto us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to meditate upon that, secure these truths in our hearts, that we, we might love you more. You might put to death the deeds of the flesh. We might serve you with gladness. Work in each one of us. Comfort, Lord, this night those who are beaten down, perhaps even by their own sin. Give them strength and endurance. And those, Lord, that know not their sin, Open their eyes. We beseech you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.